following lecture was produced by the Gnostic Academy of Chicago, a nonprofit organization, and is one of many available for podcast, download, and transcription. You can visit chicagonosis.org to find courses, articles, scriptures, commentaries, and other valuable resources that address a wide variety of spiritual subjects, interests, and needs. Through the generous support of listeners like you, the Gnostic Academy of Chicago has produced online courses, lectures, and articles freely available worldwide. If you have benefited from this knowledge, help humanity through making a tax-deductible donation at chicagonosis.org. If you are interested in attending the Gnostic Academy of Chicago in person, you may view our online class schedule and freely register at meetup.com slash chicagonosis. The Chicagoland Gnostic Academy provides humanity with the necessary means for transforming suffering and acquiring personal knowledge of the divine. With this purpose in mind, we now begin the lecture. May all beings be happy. The greatest insanities and mistakes of our humanity have always been committed in the name of spirituality and religion. All traditions throughout the world have spoken abundantly about the principle known as the fool of the tarot. And there are countless examples throughout our history in which we have seen students and missionaries of the esoteric path have committed great crimes. Purportedly, in accordance with the rules of their doctrine, the principles of love, of brotherhood, of understanding. We have only to look at an example such as Hitler, who knew Gnosis, whose principles for saving Germany became the impetus and manipulation of his person by the Black Lodge. So as this example, he had many aspirations very sacred ideals. And because he did not discriminate his own mind, he failed and brought about the destruction of millions of people. He was manipulated by a man from Tibet whom Samael Vior named the man in the green gloves. And it's well documented within the esoteric writings that when Hitler came to power, the black magicians of Tibet marched, celebrated his coronation. There are many people in Gnosis who have ended the happiness of many homes. People who study spirituality and the esoteric knowledge, but who do not have ethics. It does not matter how 
great our principles are, our ideals are, if we do not work on our ego, we will continue to be, in our most subconscious depths, criminals, fools. And because our greatest longings, ideals, are so convincing, when they are not practical, they become dangerous. People have killed in the name of freedom, of liberty, of justice. Which is why Shakespeare, in his play Hamlet, portrayed for the character Polonius, though there is madness, there is method in it. or there is method to his madness. All these ideals, when they are not grounded in experience, in actual works, end up becoming the labels by which one justifies inhumanity, foolishness. So, there are many students of occultism who believe that if only humanity had the knowledge, things would be different. If people only possessed the secret teachings by which to change, that our planet would be different. Of course, this was in relationship to the Piscean era when Gnosis was not disseminated publicly. And yet, with our current Aquarian era, which is characterized by the dissemination of the doctrine to the public. There are many people who take this knowledge and commit many mistakes, many errors. I personally know many people in Gnosis, many missionaries, who have used the writings of Sama and Vior to justify many crimes spiritually speaking, and even physically, against the law of many countries. Principally because they do not practice what they study. They do not apply what they say they know. And this is the great danger. We may know intellectually that certain behaviors are wrong. And yet, like a drug addict, an alcoholic, knowing those behaviors produce suffering, continue to do so. And this is because those individuals do not comprehend what they study. This applies to every field and level of social experience. When we don't have practical understanding or comprehension in the soul, then the intellect becomes our worst enemy. So this is why Swami Shivananda wrote and Samaya Anvir wrote that Gnosis is the path of the razor's edge. It is the straight path, the delicate path, which leads to the heights of realization and transformation. But because this work is so delicate, because the mind, the subconsciousness is so convincing, it is easy to identify with the ego. And this is the problem. 
people in spiritual movements who are fascinated by <clears throat> who are fascinated by scripture, religion, spirituality. The ego, which was formerly only invested in material things, takes on a spiritual nature, which is why we find defects like mystical pride, leaders of groups becoming arrogant or feeling better than others because they are leading a spiritual group and they wear certain regalia, yoga, tunics, big beards or a turban, any type of apparel which pronounces to the world, I am spiritual, follow me. So the ego takes on a mystical dimension, a mystical flavor. Ignoring that, this is a defect because God has no pride. A real initiate is humble, does not pronounce him or herself, but merely teaches others how to change. And unfortunately, in this era of information, we can denominate it as an era of misinformation. People who have abundant access to scriptures, unprecedented in the history of humanity. People easily become inflated by a sense of pride that somehow, because I belong to this tradition, because I've studied these books, that I know, that I am wise. And of course, there is this tendency in any spiritual group, this feeling that somehow because I belong and that I study these books, that I know. But Blavatsky, the great female yogi and initiate and master of theosophy, wrote in the voice of the silence, those who follow the I doctrine, the doctrine of the physical material I, say, thus do I know. But the doctrine of the heart, of bodhicitta, of wisdom, of real understanding, says, thus have I heard. Confess with humility and lowness, she says, transcribing that verse. So even people in Gnosis who study the writings of Samal and Vior can make many mistakes, thinking that because they follow a, this, this teaching or tradition, that somehow they are saved. They've passed beyond a great height and now are coursing across a plateau in which everything is given to them by God. And we have to be very diligent about not entering that type of attitude because with knowledge comes responsibility. If we don't apply what we learn, we become the fool of the tarot, the idiot, the bohemian who wanders lifetime to lifetime, studying and learning but never changing and never awakening consciousness. So, of course, people believe they all possess wisdom. 
even in Gnosis. But sadly, many students of Salman Vior ignore what he wrote, especially in the Major Mysteries, which is a guidebook for initiation. He said that real initiation is in the internal planes. It is not physical. You can learn from a school, but a person who is in a real occultist knows how to travel in the astral body in the internal worlds. Because that way we can verify. We can know for ourselves what is true and what is false. But again, it is always the mentality of the herd to want to belong. But when the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch, states Jesus. The ancient alchemists depicted the entrance into the spiritual path in different ways. They explained that the real knowledge is very difficult to find. It is only explored and understood and witnessed through inner effort, through humility, through self-evaluation. This is an image by Heinrich Kunrath, Amphitheatrum Sapientia Eterne, the amphitheater of eternal wisdom. This image, or glyph, is known as the citadel. It's from his book of alchemical art. And in that book, as well as the writings of, or images of many alchemists, depicted how the secret path is very difficult to find, or was very difficult to find, especially in the era of Pisces, when the doors of initiation were closed to the public. But in this Aquarian area, in which we find the knowledge openly given to humanity, we can easily go online to a website, especially GnosticTeachings.org, and find the knowledge given freely to the public. However, even with the doors of initiation being opened, to actually enter the path is even more difficult. Because people have books, they have lectures, they have scriptures, and yet people don't awaken if they're not serious, if they don't practice. And so this image depicts this truth. We see a castle surrounded by a wall. And the interesting part is that there are 21 entrances to this image. Notice that around the circumference of this glyph, this citadel, you find scripts, words, which are blocked off in small compartments, all leading to nowhere. The circumference does not lead to the center where you find a moat, a straight bridge, a path leading to a castle, and in the center, at the very top of a peak, at the top of the spire, a dragon, crowned seemingly by a triangle at the top. 
All of this is very beautiful, symbolic, Kabbalistic. What is a dragon in alchemy? It is a creature that conquers the air, the fire, the water, the earth. Or the mind, the heart, sexuality, and the body. A dragon is a master of initiation, a self-realized being, crowned by the triangle, the trinity, the top of the tree of life. Keter, Chokmah, Binah, which in Gnostic terms refer to the energies of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A self-realized master, a resurrected master. But of course, to reach those heights, we have to enter at the straight and narrow gate that leads to life, but few find. At the entranceway of this straight and narrow path is a tree. We could even say it is an olive tree, a symbol of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That tree of knowledge is the creative sexual energy which in Hebrew relates to shin, fire, the sexual force, which we're going to elaborate upon towards the end of this lecture. But notice how many people, we can say allegorically, millions of people wander around the circumference looking to find the center of this citadel, but only find a dead end. Notice that there is script and knowledge in each area, each compartment, each antechamber. And yet, they are closed off. They do not go to the center. This refers to all the intellectual knowledge of the world that people worship more than God. Here we find all the public institutions of Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Jainism, philosophy, any type of science, any type of knowledge, and yet merely fills the intellect, but does not get at the heart of the true human being, which is the, which is the Christ. So people wander lifetime to lifetime, allegorically speaking, according to the doctrine of transmigration, and never find the center, the knowledge that leads towards the entrance, the realization of the truth. This is because in this image we see that there are 21 entrances. 21, of course, according to the Gnostic Tarot, the eternal Tarot of alchemy and Kabbalah is the fool. Primarily because 21 is a card of insanity, of failure. Because it is the failure of humanity, of people who are superficial, to never really search enough or be serious in themselves to find the straight path, which is the work of the olive tree. And this is precisely 
the point of this doctrine that displeases many. In order to enter initiation, we work with the energies of sex, the tree of knowledge, the olive tree. Because even an olive in its physical characteristics resembles the testicles or the ovaries. And there are many symbols related to how we use that energy for awakening the consciousness. It is the fire of God, which can spark the awakening of the soul. And that is really what brings people into initiation, to initiate, to begin the work. It's one thing, again, to have books and lectures that teach this, but we have to do it ourselves. So while this alchemical image does pertain to history and how the knowledge was never given to the public, and people had to wander again and again, searching as the wandering fool from lifetime to lifetime. Now, our current era is a little different because as we said, now we have all the books, all the teachings available for free. Anyone can enter initiation, but to want to do it is another thing. But people tend to be very satisfied with their level of being. People love to wander from school to school, from philosophy to philosophy, from book to book, being interested, being curious, being fascinated. But when they die, after not having practice at all, they go to the grave and perhaps they will enter a new body to repeat again and again that same process. And this, of course, according to spiritual knowledge, is stupid. It's foolish. We are asleep. We don't know where we came from, where we are at, or where we are going. But the one who awakens the consciousness knows where he or she came from and especially is aware of the present moment, is awake spiritually, is practicing self-observation, self-remembering, and knows in accordance with the path where they will go when they die. And so people tend to be very fascinated with what they have studied, feeling self-sufficient, proud that they are the members of, or participants of the elite. And yet the facts speak for themselves. Profound suffering, ignorance, the inability to investigate the mysteries of life and death for themselves through astral travel, the awakening of the consciousness. So this is why in our tradition we state the dead letter kills. Literalism, fanaticism kills the soul. Because if we interpret things literally, we will never experience or work to practice to have what those 
scriptures symbolize to understand them from experience. So, the dead letter has sent many people to the grave in a spiritual sense. There are many people in the realms of Klippot, the infra-dimensions, who know the scriptures. There are people in the inferior astral plane, in the interior of the earth, who are devolving, descending towards the ninth sphere to be disintegrated. Who can quote for you exactly the Bible, the New Testament, the Quran, the Bhagavad Gita? Everything that is so venerated today by all of our spiritual traditions. Which is why Shakespeare wrote in The Merchant of Venice something very interesting. The devil can cite scripture for his purpose. An evil soul producing holy witness is like a villain with a smiling cheek. A goodly apple rotten at the heart. Oh, what a goodly outside falsehood hath. So, of course, knowledge and spiritual studies always become and on their appearances are very beautiful, very inspiring, very enticing. But if they lack the practical dimension of how to change, of how to transform the psyche, then they are incipient. They are a dead end. So Gnosis has been in every tradition, every religion, every path, but in an allegorical form, symbolic form, like you see here with this alchemical image. But the real practical meaning has never been given except to those who've earned it. But of course, as I stated, we're in a different age. Whether or not we deserve the knowledge is one thing. The opportunity is there. So through the eternal Torah, we explain what all the symbols mean, what they represent. And of course, all these symbols are eloquent, beautiful, invigorating, But falsehood, or the fool of the tarot, takes on a beautiful appearance. Symbols take on beautiful appearances. But without the practical awakening of the soul, these symbols become a dead end. Which is why Paul of Tarsus stated in the book of Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, about this truth. In the Gnostic knowledge, we may have practices and methods to change, but it's not a reason to be arrogant or proud. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. To be sufficient in God is to experience the being, to know these principles for 
ourselves through awakening in the internal planes. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Again, Paul of Tarsus was a Kabbalist and an alchemist. He spoke in symbols. When people read things literally, they don't understand how it applies to life, how, to the path of initiation. And so this is the path of the Hebrew letter Shin, the fire of life, the spirit, which can awaken us and lead us towards and through the path itself that leads up the mountain. So again, this is a castle or citadel, but also is a mountain, which Saul Alenvier wrote about in his books, the mountain of initiation that we must climb. So, I'd like to quote for you a few points regarding these truths through a very misunderstood scripture. It is the Quran, which is a very harsh scripture to the ego, the mind that wants security, wants assurance that somehow, because I belong to this group, I am saved. Bismillah ir-Rahman ir-Rahim. In the name of the being, the compassionate, the merciful. Alif, Lam, Mim. Or in Hebrew, Aleph, Lamed, Mem. This is the book about which there is no doubt. A guidance for those conscious of Allah. Meaning, we are awakening in the internal planes in order to verify the letter that kills the public but which vivifies through its symbolism the spirit who believe in the unseen, establish prayer, and spend out what we have provided for them, and who believe in what has been revealed to you, the Prophet Muhammad, a master of the straight path, and what was revealed before you, and of the hereafter they are certain in faith. So the word belief in Arabic is, relates to believer or mumin. Muminin means the believers. Translated into English is very inaccurate. To think that belief is a concept, to think of something as true or to feel something is true. But to believe means to be through the power of love, to work in the perfect matrimony to be an alchemist, be libido, to work with the sexual energy. That is Allah, Kimia, the secret teachings of Islam that were never made public. Also, those who believe the muminin, al-mumin, relates to ma'im in Hebrew, meaning the waters. Again, a symbol of the tree of knowledge the work with the force of sex. This is the energy that gives us faith, that awakens us. 
those who are upon right guidance from the Lord, and it is those who are successful. Indeed, those who disbelieve in the word for unbeliever in Islam, in Arabic, is kafirin, kafir, reminding us of al-kaf, in Arabic, the cave. Those entities of the Black Lodge that dwell in the caves of the earth in the inferior plains, as we've explained previously in this course. Those black magicians, those who disbelieve, who hate Christ, it is all the same for them whether you warn them or do not warn them. They will not believe. They will not work. Allah has set a seal upon their hearts and upon their hearing. And over their vision is a veil. And for them is a great punishment, devolution in the internal planes. And of the people are some who say, we believe in Allah on the last day. Or in our times, they say fanatically, I believe in Samai and Vior and the resurrection and the path. And yet they are not believers. They are not alchemists. They are not annihilating the ego or sacrificing for humanity. They think to deceive Allah and those who believe, but they deceive not except themselves and perceive it not. In their hearts is a disease, so Allah has increased their disease and for them is a painful punishment because they habitually used to lie. And when it is said to them, do not cause corruption on the earth, they say, we are but reformers. And this is an interesting thing that's happening today in the Gnostic movement. There are many self-proclaimed prophets and masters saying, I am following the true tradition. I am uniting all the schools of Gnosis under one flag. Therefore, everyone else is a heretic, is a fool. Unquestionably, it is they who are the corruptors, but they perceive it not. And when it is said to them, believe as the people have believed, to transmute as the alchemists transmute, they say, should we believe as the foolish have believed? Unquestionably, it is they who are the foolish, the fools of the Torah, but they know it not. And when they meet those who believe, meaning the alchemists, they say, we believe. But when they are alone with their evil ones, their psychic aggregates, their egos, they say, indeed, we are with you. We were only mockers to mock the White Lodge. But Allah mocks them and prolongs them in their transgression while they wander blindly because karma. It takes tremendous suffering to want to enter the path of initiation. And some people need to mature, to suffer a lot, to want to realize that if we don't change, we will suffer even more. And so God, out of compassion, seals their heart. And this is a verse that frightens many Westerners because they don't understand what this means. They think that the Muslim version of God is very hateful. But that seal of ignorance 
is out of compassion, saying these people are not ready for the knowledge because if they were to try practicing or to start when they're immature, they will enter into greater pain, develop in the negative way as black magicians, al-kafirin, those who live in the caves, al-kaf of the earth. This is why Samal and Vior wrote, Curious, foolish, do not enter the path because Gnosis is a double-edged sword. With it, it uh, defends the righteous but punishes the wicked. There is only two outcomes of this knowledge, an angel or a demon. We have to decide what it is we want. Those are the ones who have purchased error in exchange for guidance. So their transaction has brought no profit in accordance with the law of compensation, the Dharma, the law of karma. Nor were they guided, meaning internally in the astral plane. Their example is that of one who kindled a fire, but when it illuminated what was around him, Allah took away their light and left them in darkness so they could not see. This is very interesting in relation to the arcanum of the fool, transmutation. The Hebrew letter associated with this card is shin, the fire. If we expel our sexual fire through lust, we have no light to generate awakening. So God takes away the light if we fall, sexually speaking, so that we can't see, like Samson in the Bible, blinded by the Philistines, his own egos, when he gave away his secret to Delilah, the ego of the night. Deaf, dumb, and blind, so they will not return to the right path. This is from Surat al-Baqarah, verses 1 through 18. Let us look at the actual glyph. Here we see a white and a black moon juxtaposed with the darkness over the light. This refers to the antitheses of the soul, referring to the spheres of Lilith and Nachemah and Kabbalah, or two psychological qualities relating to our infraconsciousness, our unconsciousness, our subconsciousness. It refers to the animal mind, the ego, in all its totality. We see a magician with the staff of the patriarchs in one hand and the Tao cross in the other. That staff in his left hand, the staff of patriarchy, of patar, the stone, the staff of the father, is the spinal column through which the sacred fire rises in the perfect matrimony.
The Ankh or Ankh cross is the Egyptian symbol of life. It also relates to the next card, to Tav, the seal of God, which we must perfect through the work of alchemy. This initiate stands upon a crocodile that is waiting to devour him. That crocodile is Sept in Egyptian mythology, the ego, the Hebraic or Judeo-Christian Muslim Satan, Shaitan, the mind. So this magician, this initiate, wields the staff of the spinal column of Christ's will to obey God in all three brains. And the ink cross in the other hand, the power of life of Chaya, Chava, Eve, in order to conquer and defend himself against his own ego. The magician is covered in a tiger's skin. And the dog and the tiger have traditionally been associated with the death of desire. The dog is sexual fire, the erotic instinct. And the tiger is a symbol of the warrior spirit. And there's even in South America, many tribes associated with the tiger knights who are great spiritual adepts who had many powers, could transform themselves physically through jinn science. And they were able to do that because, like in the parable or myth of Moses, he conquered, or they conquered, their own ego, annihilated the ego. And when you annihilate the ego, you become like Moshe, Moses, able to perform miracles like he did to free the Israelites, a symbol of freeing all the parts of the soul, of Isis, Ra, El. Isis, the Divine Mother, Ra, Osiris Ra, the Solar Father, and El, the Spirit. We need to have the fearlessness and sagaciousness of the tiger, the wisdom of the tiger, in order to kill the ego and resurrect the dragon of our innermost within us. So again, a tiger is an interesting symbol, primarily because the cat or feline is another, another symbol of sexuality. It is the mercury of the wise, <clears throat> the mercury of the, <clears throat> of the alchemists. A lot of people confuse the 21st Arcanum with the 22nd. In some decks, the Fool of the Tarot is switched. But we clarify, and this makes sense, that the Fool comes towards the end of the path. Primarily because when one is entering or achieving the very heights of initiation, there exists the greatest danger of failing. This is the straight path of Jesus. And which is why Salman Vayar stated, the danger of being a demon is never so close as when one is very close to being an angel. 
because with power comes responsibility. The fool emerges after 20, resurrection, because many resurrected masters have fallen. Resurrection is not the end of the path. After a master resurrects, there is work to do on the third mountain, ascension. But there are many, even when that perfection of that level has been reached, they still can fail. And so there are many resurrected masters in our Gnostic movement who fell and have returned again to recapitulate their work. It's very common. I personally know many people like that. But they're not special. In fact, they've really committed a great crime, have become fools, idiots, because they were up there, and now they're down here. So they have to regain what they lost. And while their being is mighty, their soul is silly and stupid, foolish. So the fool of the tarot traditionally is depicted with the hieroglyphic of a man who carries a bag on a stick, which is a symbol of all the vices and egos and defects he or she carries with them at all times, from lifetime to lifetime. This is the bohemian, the homeless, the fool, or even in some circles, the trope of the wandering Jew. A symbol of having been exiled from Israel, the holy city, the holy Darussalam in Arabic, Jerusalem, the city of peace, which is the absolute. And so, while the people of Israel in the Middle East are one thing, we're talking about the allegory, the Kabbalah, the symbols of the soul that left that and now wander around lifetime to lifetime in many bodies, repeating the same mistakes. This is the meaning of rotating in the wheel of samsara, according with Arcanum 10. So, the sexual nature of this card is demonstrated not only in this deck, but in some other decks, where you can see sometimes the disarray of the clothes of the beggar, of the fool, in which the sexual organs are hinted at or shown. This is a reference to the shamelessness of that initiate that fell. It refers to uh, full, uh, lasciviousness, sexual desire, lewdness. And some other decks, the tiger is biting the leg of the, the fool, the initiate, because sexual passion is constantly biting that soul that is filled with desire, with animality, with lust. But because he is foolish, he doesn't try to push away the animal that is biting him. You don't see that represented in this glyph, but in some other decks you do see that, which carries some fragments or remnants of the eternal tarot as they were originally given internally. But Samal Enviar mentions this in Alchemy and Kabbalah in the Tarot. And that to see the flesh of this initiate is a symbol of his worldly life, the materialism and lack of spirituality 
And as I mentioned, there are many fallen bodhisattvas and gnosis. Up there, their being is high, but in the material, physical plane, they have many mistakes and live like any other person. Nothing special about them. And so you find that represented in this arcanum. This arcanum also represents the inverted pentagram, the fallen man, the one who spills the cup of Hermes Trismegistus. In order to prevent a fall, we must eliminate desire, the ego, because without the removal of sexual desire, there will always be temptation. But also, I want to reiterate some points given by one example of uh, this principle. There was a German author by the name of Friedrich Nietzsche who knew the esoteric science, who knew Gnosis, who actually was a fallen bodhisattva. He was once very high, but he entered into temptation and fell. He became a fool, an idiot. But his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, is beautiful because he was going up at the time. So it's a very positive work, alchemical Kabbalistic book, which emphasized these principles that we are explaining. This is from a chapter called The Wanderer, in which we learn about how after resurrection, one faces the greatest temptation, the greatest ordeals, in relation to the mountain of ascension, the heights. The danger when reaching the heights is greatest, as you'll see mentioned here. So these stories are a fictional account of Zarathustra, an Iranian prophet, who became the symbol of a master of bodhisattva, really referencing Nietzsche, his development at one point. It was about midnight when Zarathustra started across the ridge of the island so that he might reach the other coast by early morning. For there he wanted to embark. There he would find a good roadstead where foreign ships too liked to anchor. And they often took along people who wanted to cross the sea from the Blessed Isles. Again, the reference to the sea is the work with the sexual waters, to travel on the ark the great arcanum. The Blessed Isles relate to the Germanic myths, hyperboreas, hyper meaning beyond, and boreas meaning the north wind. So the land of hyperboreas or the hyperboreans were the former root race, a former root race that existed on this planet, who was an advanced civilization which became an inspiration for Nietzsche to write about. So to cross the sea, to enter the Blessed Isles, is to enter the land of the north, which in Kabbalah relates to the head. The north can relate to our hyperborean nature, because all the forces of God descend from the absolute down into our head, then through our body, and then we reinitiate that energy up by working with the sea, the waters, so the ark, the great arcanum. 
Through Boreas, the wind, the breath. With our breath work, we take those energies, we circulate them inward and upwardly to our mind, to our heart. That is how we enter the Blessed Isles, the land of Avalon, where all the great knights of the jinn science, the great jinns or genii in the myths of Arthur exist, the great heroes who conquered themselves and obtained the Holy Grail, the mysteries of alchemy. Now as Zarathustra was climbing the mountain, he thought how often since his youth he had wandered alone and how many mountains and ridges and peaks he had already climbed because he was an initiate. I am a wanderer and a mountain climber, he said to his heart. I do not like the plains and it seems I cannot sit still for long because the work of initiation is rigorous, one difficulty after the next. And whatever may yet come to me as destiny and experience will include some wandering and mountain climbing. In the end, one experiences only oneself because that path is internal. As Samael and Vera wrote, initiation is your own life lived intensely with rectitude and with love. The time is gone when mere accidents could still happen to me. And what could still come to me now that what was not mine already? Here he's talking about how he was self-realized before. But as we learn about the life of Nietzsche, he did fail. So he was quite arrogant here to think that he was beyond mere accidents, to thinking that he wouldn't fall, but he did. What returns, what finally comes home to me, is my own self, and what of myself has long been in strange lands and scattered among all things and accidents. And one further thing I know, I stand before my final peak now, the mountain of ascension, and before that which has been saved up for me the longest. Alas, now I must face my hardest path. Alas, I have begun my loneliest walk. Because as Samal and Vera wrote, when a resurrected master achieves that height, they must serve countless humanities anonymously in order to enter and gain the right to enter the absolute, the heights. But whoever is of my kind cannot escape such an hour, the hour which says to him, only now are you going your way to greatness, peak and abyss. They are now joined together. So why is it that the peak and the abyss are linked? Because internally you have the experience of facing the end of the path, there is the decision to go all the way up or to go down. You are going your way to greatness. Now that which has hitherto been your ultimate danger has become your ultimate refuge. So it is very frightening to face that dilemma, to be or not to be. That is the question. So it is the greatest danger, but it is the refuge. As the Muslims say, there is no refuge but Allah. Ain sof, paranishpana. 
the self-realized monad, our true identity. You are going your way to greatness. Now this must give you the greatest courage that there is no longer any path behind you. You are going your way to greatness. Here nobody shall sneak after you. Your own foot has effaced the path behind you, and over it there is written impossibility. As, as states in the Egyptian mythology, or the doctrine of the Masons, the veil of Isis must be torn, and that no mortal has lifted that veil. It is impossible for a mortal to reach that height. Instead, it is for the resurrected masters, the immortal. And if you now lack all ladders, then you must know how to climb on your own head. Your chakra sahasrara, which in meditation, you project from that chakra, you can enter all the very heights, the Ain Sof. How else would you want to climb upward? On your own head and away over your own heart. Because as we began our practice today, we balance the mind and the heart together to reach the heights. Now what was gentlest in you must still become the hardest. He who has always spared himself much will in the end become sickly of so much consideration. Self-consideration is a big problem. To feel that we have suffered a lot, that we deserve praise, that we deserve respect. And when humanity does not give it to us, we suffer. Praise be what hardens. I do not praise the land where butter and honey flow. And so he plays on these allegories in an interesting way. Because he says that an initiate is very hard, very sweet and kind, but with a willpower of steel to not make mistakes. One must learn to look away from oneself in order to see much. So, looking away from our terrestrial psychology by entering meditation, entering the internal plane so that we can see beyond ourselves to stand outside ourselves. Ex statuo in Latin, the root of the word ecstasy, samadhi. This hardness is necessary to every climber of mountains. But the lover of knowledge who is obtrusive with his eyes, how could he see more of all things than their foregrounds, their appearances? Because as you saw in the image of the citadel, Many people are fascinated with appearances, that they are religious and spiritual because of superficial reasons. They are circulate around that castle, never having any access to the interior. But you, O Zarathustra, wanted to see the ground and background of all things. Hence, you must climb over yourself, like that mountain in the image of the citadel, upward, up, until even your very stars are under you. Indeed, to look upon or look down upon oneself, myself and even upon my stars, that alone I should call my peak. That has remained for me as my ultimate peak. So that is the very heights of the path to enter the Ain Sof. But of course, to reach that card with the return, Arcanum 22, you have to risk being a fool to really sacrifice everything to go up and reach that point. 
So this is the revolutionary Aquarian knowledge. The path of Aquarius, aqua, Aries, the water and the fire, or the water and eros, eris, the breath, relating to Boreas, the wind. We find Aquarius is related to this card precisely for that reason. So the symbol of Aquarius is the water carrier, the symbol of alchemy, which is the revolutionary zodiacal influence that aids us in our alchemical practice. We achieve this perfection by conquering Neptune, the trident, the work with the sexual energy. These three forces find their antithesis in the three traitors of Christianity, Egyptian mythology, and many other stories which all relate to the inverted polarization of the letter Shin, the fires of sex. So those three traitors of Christianity are known as Judas, Pilate, Caiaphas. They represent our own mind, our own negative emotions, or evil will, and our own desires. So those figures in the Bible represent archetypes within ourselves. And as a guidance to teach us about initiation, how to walk the path, how to fulfill it. This image is of the Bacchanalia, the great festivities and orgies of Bacchus, inebriation through wine and desire, fornication. This is a symbol of our humanity, which worships drugs, violence, fornication, adultery. The three traders in Egypt are known as Apopai, Hai, and Nept. And Judas, of course, is the uh, ego of desire, who betrays Jesus or Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Judas is a type of mentality that loves religion loves spirituality, loves Christ, but loves fornication more. To expel the sexual energy is more important to Judas than to follow God. Pilate is the demon of the mind, of authority, of pontification, relating to Pontus or Pontius Pilate, one who pontificates, who orders other people around. These are all the people of spiritual movements or philosophies and politics who believe in their authority and wash their hands clean of culpability that they do not deserve judgment or retribution. In Caiaphas, the demon of evil will is the worst because Caiaphas is the mystical figure who really condemned Christ to the cross. How our own evil will, which doesn't want anything to do with God, betrays him through hatred, through violence, through sarcasm. Caiaphas is a very <clears throat> instinctual type of ego who wants to preserve religion and traditions that have been followed for thousands of years and yet are empty and dead. 
So, Caiaphas is an evil will that rejects anything revolutionary or Christic. So we possess a kamarupa, a body of desires, Judas, a manasarupa, a body of mind, Pontius Pilate, and Caiaphas, which is evil will, the causal mind, the causal egos, the seeds of desire, which we must incinerate upon the path of resurrection. Desire in strict esoteric terms is ego. I want, I crave, I need, I desire. I must get what I want at the expense of others. While some people and poets like Rumi have used the term desire to refer to desire of God, longing of God, in strict language we could say desire is the mind, ego. Longing and yearning for divinity is one thing. But here we're being very specific with terminology, although there are different interpretations. So the consciousness or essence longs to know God. But the essence or longing for God is very different from desire. And that is something that we can only know for ourselves in meditation to discriminate what in us is negative, what is positive. So this is the beginning of real wisdom. Theosophy mentions how these three bodies, the astral body, the mental body, the causal body, are already possessed by humanity. But this is a, based on an ignorance of what the internal vehicles are from experience. We've been spending a lot of time talking about the lunar bodies and the solar bodies. Kamarupa, desire body, is what we travel with in the lunar astral plane, where we typically dream at night. That's Judas. Everybody has Judas inside. But to have a solar astral body, a Christ solar vehicle, with which we can investigate the superior astral plane, is different. That's something we have to create in alchemy. But a solar mind is very different from a mind of desire, which is Pilate. Because the mind, the intellectualism we know of today, may have a lot of theories and justifications for doing things, and yet they're egotistical. We usually like to use our mind to justify our mistakes. And this is, of course, how we wash our hands clean and justify ourselves. But of course, that has to be eliminated if we want to develop a Christ mind, like a chalice, a vehicle that can receive the wine of Christ, which is an energy, a fire, that is very high, very pure. But in order to have a will of Christ, the intimate Christ, we must eliminate Caiaphas, that ego that feels that it is justified because it belongs to a certain tradition. Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Christian, Gnostic, whatever it is. There are many people in our Gnostic movement and other traditions who justify persecution and excommunications and other sorts of types of silliness, gossip, whatever, because their Caiaphas is very big. They are Pharisees. They think that they're the only one who should have the knowledge. Everybody else is wrong. So every tradition has faced this 
this struggle. So these three traders are also known as the three theories amongst the Greeks and the Romans. So we have to annihilate these three traitors in order to cease becoming a fool. And as Samalan Vera mentions, the cause of the desire are found in our senses. Visual, auditory, tactile, olfactory, relating to smell, gustatory, relating to taste. <coughs> the ego is fed through the five senses, the sensual mind. And whenever we identify with sensations, we create ego. Meaning, we have a sensation that's pleasant, and we become attached, we identify ourselves with that uh, impression, but we feed a false sense of self related to that impression itself. We have to learn not to justify or condemn impressions. When we experience pleasant things, for example, drinking a Starbucks coffee, one can enjoy it without identifying, without feeding gluttony. Or not run away from unpleasant impressions. Something bad happens, we get into an argument, we feel anger and resentment surge up and want to retaliate. Well, if someone's criticizing us, it's actually a good thing because they're showing us our ego that we need to work on. Pride, self-esteem, fear, vanity, resentment. We have to learn to receive the impressions of life without getting stuck in the moment. And we all have that impression when we're doing that, this work where certain situations make us feel identified. We lose energy when we feed anger or desire or gluttony or whatever. We have to experience life without feeding that self, which we do so through self-observation. Observe your three brains. What are the thoughts? What are the feelings? What are the impulses we experience in the moment? We have to observe all that. In relation to the senses, what impressions are coming in? Who is wanting to act in us and why? We have to learn to see that in ourselves. Because anytime an image of lust, whether it be pornography or advertisements or the opposite sex, we see those impressions, they come into us. But if we identify, we invest our energy or self into that. We become petrified as a soul. This is the myth of Medusa. If you look into the eyes of Medusa, the ego, we become stone, stuck. And then it becomes very difficult to break out because the more we feed desire, the bigger the habits become. Even songs we hear on the radio, which tend to be very vulgar, relating to lust and desire, enter our psyche, and if we don't transform those impressions, we become sick mentally, because those songs or impressions feed negative emotion. And we explain this principle very extensively in our course on the secret teachings of opera, which you can listen to on Chicago Gnosis. So, even touch becomes lust if touching another person, there's desire. 
in the moment, even towards one's partner. So one has to learn to see lust in all the senses, see anger through the senses, how it feeds in that way. We can't just run away from negative impressions or feed good ones. We have to learn to see them both in balance. This is the path of the, pendul- the middle way so that we don't go to extremes like the pendulum. And if you're familiar with hypnosis, they use the pendulum to put people to sleep. It's a reference of our consciousness going asleep, which is negative. We need meditation and creative analysis in order to comprehend impressions, transform them, and to work on the mind. Because the ego always wants certain impressions. These are our habits. We always want to chase after good feelings and run away from negative ones. And so that determines all of our situations in life. We go towards the good, run away from the bad. And yet this is the churning of the ocean of our mind that keeps us asleep. We have to look at bad situations with a conscious eye and not to run away from mistakes because they're going to teach us something valuable about ourselves. So maybe we work at a job we hate, but whether or not it's a good decision to move on shouldn't be based upon a sense of inadequacy or fear or paranoia or pride that, oh, I'm not good enough, I need to get a better job, they don't appreciate me here, I don't like the environment. Regardless of what those emotions are, we have to do what we need to do, but separating or seeing the relationship between our internal world with the external. When you change your internal states, the external changes. And this has to do with what we call the transformation of impressions. We have to learn to transform what we experience. This is an image of, a, I believe, a Sufi woman in dance, or an Arabian dance, which has its connotations. Perhaps a lustful image. We must learn to see life without translating what we see. So whenever we see an image of a person, we have to learn to see it with, without translating in our mind. Meaning you see the opposite sex, the mind will take that impression, that impression will strike the senses, the consciousness, the ego, and then the mind will start to react. You can only see this interaction in yourself if you're observing. If we're not observing ourselves, that means we're asleep. The essence is not active. Because typically we go through our day, impressions enter the psyche, and we just do things mechanically. How many times do we go through life driving our car, thinking of our friend or fiancé or family members, and then we miss our stop? We're on the train, we suddenly realize, where am I going? I don't know where I am. You know, we have those moments where we forget. So that's a brief glimpse of our chronic condition. And every time we take in impressions that we don't work on or observe, they become ego or pornographic images in the astral and mental planes. I know one instructor mentioned how he was just walking to the grocery store. Briefly for half a millisecond, he saw, as you see in the, towards the cashier lines, 
magazines of a lustful type, women or men and provocative images, which are very common. So he didn't think of it. He saw it for a second and moved on, didn't even think twice. Later that night, he had an ordeal where he was facing an entity his mind created with the image of one of the women that he saw. So anytime an impression enters that we don't transform and comprehend, becomes more desire. And then we have to fight twice as hard to fix that. This is why we need death moment by moment, says Salman Vior, the death of the ego, which means observe. Don't give desire what it wants. Comprehend it. See it for what it is. Don't let the mind make a transaction where it translates what we see and deepens our state of desire. So we have to work on the mind. The mind is a bottle. And if you're familiar with Middle Eastern doctrine, they talk about the myth of Aladdin and the lamp. It's an interesting myth. The lamp is the ego in which the genie or the soul that can perform miracles is trapped. Same myth as Moses freeing the Israelites. You break the lamp, you open it based off comprehension, and the soul is liberated. This is the teachings of Allah Din. Allah the being, the divine, and din, or deen in Arabic means religion, discrimination, judgment. So you free your soul through the judgment of God, which is psychoanalytic meditation. The Sufis speak beautifully about how to overcome lust in a book called Revelation of the Mystery which explains many principles that we've been relating. I recommend that uh, you study some of the following verses. We'll give some in brief. In which they talk about the lower soul, the mind, the ego, which is in Arabic, nafas, desire. The most manifest attribute of the lower soul is lust, shahwat. Lust is a thing that is dispersed in different parts of the human body and is served by the senses. Man is bound, or woman is bound, to guard all his or her members from it. Meaning, we have to train our sexual organs not to fornicate, to conserve the energies, transmute them. And he shall be questioned concerning the acts of each. The lust of the eye is sight, that of the ear is hearing, that of the nose is smell, that of the tongue is speech, that of the palate is taste, that of the body, jasad, is touch, and that of the mind is thought, andishidan. It behooves the seeker of God to spend his whole life day and night in ridding himself of these incitements to passion, which show themselves through the senses, which means transform the impressions and to pray God to make him such that his desire will be removed from his inward nature, which we do so by contemplation, mushahida in Arabic, psychoanalytical meditation or witnessing. Since whoever is afflicted with lust is veiled from all spiritual things, 
If anyone should repel it by his own exertions, without divine help, the influence of the being, his task would be long and painful. The right way is resignation, taslim. It is related that Abu Ali Siyah Merv said, I had gone to the bath in accordance with the customs of the Prophet. I was using a razor. I said to myself, O Abu Ali, amputate this member which is the source of all lusts and keeps the afflicted with so much evil. A voice in my heart, an intuition emerged, whispered, O Abu Ali, without interfering my kingdom, because scientific chastity is fundamental. For as it says in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verse 1, he that is wounded in the stones, the sexual organs, or hath his privy member cut off, shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. So we can't just reject sex like the celibates, because people who reject sexuality become lunatics, fools. Without that energy, the mind cannot be rejuvenated. The mind becomes a moon, mechanical, as we're going to explain next. Are not all thy limbs equally at my disposal? Because the sexual organs are the foundation stone of alchemia, alchemy. If thou do this, I swear by my glory that I will put a hundredfold lust and passion in every hair in that place. You can even think of the story of Klingzor in Wagner's opera Parsifal, who became a black magician because he castrated himself. He used to be a knight of the Holy Grail in that story, but thinking that he could conquer lust by amputating himself, he became a demon. You can't just run away from sex nor feed it. You have to work with it in balance through the middle way. This all ties into our work with the psychological gymnasium. Life is a gym. It is not an end in itself. Life should not just be, I go through my job, earn my paycheck, and then go home and relax. Although that's typically what makes up all the life or materialism or material life in general. In this work, we take life as a arena in which we battle against our mind. We have to learn to take the impressions of life that are difficult and transform them for our spiritual growth. Initiation is our life. It is not found by going to Tibet, going to some sacred temple, some space, attending a school. Those things are beautiful and wonderful, but you really enter initiation when you work at a job that you hate and people are against you and they're pushing your anger out and showing you yourself. And if you transform your mind and state in those moments, you gain knowledge. And then, with serenity and knowledge, the external settles, situations change. We move on to the next ordeals. Ordeals are means of facing ourselves. If we don't face ourselves and take upon an attitude of introversion, learning to see the mind for what it is in the most greatest hardships, then we end up making mistakes. Because if we repeat things mechanically, behaviors again and again, lifetime to lifetime, those situations will get worse spiraling down. 
But when you transform impressions and eliminate the ego, you eliminate those actors in those dramas, then those situations resolve themselves of their own. And then we cease being the idiot, which even Fyodor Dostoevsky wrote a book about. He's a great Russian author, considered a philosopher and a psychologist and a literary giant. One of my favorite books by him is precisely of this title. You see Dostoevsky on the right. <clears throat> and on the left of him, you find the Prince Lev Nikolai Mishkin, who is the central protagonist of this drama. This book was inspired or inspired by this image you see above, which is, a, I believe, the death of Christ. I don't remember what particular image it is, what museum it is, but Dostoevsky saw that image and became fascinated but also afraid. And he depicted in his novels Gnostic principles, initiatic principles that are allegorical, Kabbalistic, profound. This book, The Idiot, is about a prince Lev Nikolaevich Mishkin, who is in his mid-twenties. He's one of the last of the noble lines of Russian nobility. He travels to St. Petersburg to return among people after his absence. He was living in the, I believe, Switzerland or in a Swiss clinic because he had epilepsy. And there's a relationship between the author having epilepsy that inspired his character. We know that epilepsy in Gnosticism is caused by mediumship, black magic, because that people who incarnate the souls of the dead dislocate their mental and emotional bodies and become sick physically. So Dostoevsky was, was a very spiritual person, although he didn't practice mediumship in this life, his, that life. But the prince was living in the mountains, living in the air, the cold air, to receive benefit for his health, which is a symbol of him being an initiate. He descends down to Petersburg, Patar, Peter, Berg, the city of, or stone of Patar, the, the sexual work. He goes to be among some relatives and also to collect a large inheritance. So he's going to visit a family member when he gets caught up in the 19th century aristocratic social circle which people are fascinated by his kindness, his compassion, his simplicity, his beauty but they recognize that he is a fool because he doesn't know how people manipulate him so they play and toy with his innocence his ignorance of how to navigate this social realm it's at that time he becomes infatuated with a woman scandalous figure by the name of Nastasia Filipovna Barakshov or Barakshova or Barashkova, excuse me. He sees her portrait first and then he later meets her at a party where he proclaims his love for her just randomly. He fell in love and acts like a fool giving himself away to this woman who people in those, those circles know she's not a, you know, not a good person. This woman also goes back and forth between the Russian figure, 
Rogolkson, who was a dark figure, a merchant, who was a criminal deep down. So Nastasia is related to as a fallen woman. She used to be the concubine of the aristocrat Totsky against her will. So she's innocent, but she's fallen at the same time, which is interesting. Her fallen nature goes towards Rogoxen, which pleases, of course, this figure who's also, Rogoxen's in love with her too. But she also is a, uh, in love with Mishkin at the same time, going between the two men, back and forth. So she can't reconcile those two distinct drives, her innocence and her purity, which is a symbol of any one of us, the soul. So at first she goes to Mishkin, which of course infuriates Rogoxen, and Rogoxen later takes this woman and Mishkin is left in sorrow too. These are all symbols. These characters are allegorical. They represent a drama in the soul. And in this book particularly, we find how Mishkin, a bodhisattva, a master, becomes a fool of the tarot. So Mishkin is given an opportunity by the law to marry a woman who will help him and not chase after Nastasia, this concubine, this dark figure. Mishkin falls in love with Aglaya Ivanovna. And Aglaya is a young, innocent girl who actually would be a good match for him, but he can't decide. He becomes an idiot. So this forms a very fatal love triangle that drives the plot. I mean, it's an 800-page book. I don't recommend necessarily taking the time to read it all, but the principles, when you break them down, are very simple. The names are very symbolic. Lev is lion. Mish is in Mishkin, means mouse. He's a lion and a mouse at the same time. He has the highest ideals in himself, the lion of Judah, a master, a being in him. And yet, he's fallen. He's like a rat. A mouse makes mistakes. We call this figure a Haslamus from the Sanskrit, ha, the particle expressing sorrow, dejection, pain. Asna, to be voracious, eating, consuming, or it also means a stone. And then mus, mish, a mouse, a thief. So a hasna mus is a being, a thief or mouse, who voraciously devours or consumes a stone with sorrow, with pain. What is a Hasnamus, according to Sabal and Vior? It's a being or a master who once was up there, but then fell. Their inner God is a great master of the White Lodge, but the ego is a master of the Black Lodge. They're split. Lion above, mouse below. It's an abortion, a failure, a fool. There are many Hasnamusin in the movement. In a simple level, whether we entered initiation before, we have the being above, but we also have ego. Therefore, we are Hasnamusin. We are split between heaven and hell. Dostoevsky even wrote Crime and Punishment to, to portray the same principle with Raskolnikov, who is a, his name literally means split 
Raskolov. Split between heaven, hell, not knowing what to decide. You can read those books too. They interest you. But what is a thief? Someone who steals the energies of God, but through lust. To voraciously devour a stone, the sexual force with pain. So Prince Mishkin could have been with this girl Aglaya, which in Hebrew is Agla. Ata gibor leolam Adonai. You are mighty forever, O Lord. Eva novna. E A O. Ignis, agua, origo. Fire, water, spirit. She's the soul that could have liberated him. Mishkin, but he fell in love with Nastasia. And in Russian, Nastasia reminds us of Anastasis, which in Greek means resurrection. Barashkova means sacrificial lamb. So why is it that the fallen woman is, relates to resurrection and the sacrificial lamb? Because there are many masters who fell intentionally. They were resurrected, but then they became fools of the tarot. They intentionally fell. They lost their energies, entered devolution, because they knew that if they were to rise again after having fallen, they would gain more light. But that's a very particular path that doesn't apply to many people. And those beings are very dangerous. They're very hypocritical split. They have a split personality. Solar, lunar at the same time. Therefore, they can't be trusted. So, at the very end of this novel, Prince Mishkin is going between Aglaya and Nastasia. He can't decide. He even says that he wants to marry both. He wants to love both women at the same time. But of course, the people around him are saying, you're, you're insane. So, Arcanum 6, he has the virgin Aglaya who can help him, but then the whore Nastasia who's going to pull him down. And that leads him to insanity. He ends up in the insane asylum. A fool. But uh, a lot of symbols present in that myth. So Salman Vera mentioned in a lecture called Matrimony, divorce, and tantrism about this principle. Uh, if we look at sexuality with lust or if we hate sexuality, it ends in lunacy. The one who sees a sin within love, the one who hates sex, is a degenerate infrasexual who wants to castrate the sun, S-U-N. Yet for his disgrace, he will be castrated. Whoever hates love and sex will not consume the food of the sun, and his testicles will dry up and die before his death. Because the solar force, the seed of life, is in our sexual glands. To not work with that is to be castrated. To be insane. Because those energies, they don't go to the mind. The mind is impoverished. It becomes lunar. I'll mention one other brief fact of that book, even the figure Rogoxin, who intentionally tries to kill Mishkin because 
he's with Nastasia. Rogogson lived in a house that was owned by a group of castrates, celibates who removed their sexual organs. It's a symbol of Lilith, hell, people who hate sexuality, who hate the Holy Ghost. And Mishkin becomes friends with him, even though Rogogson's going to kill him. He's an idiot. A master who gives in to their lower nature becomes the fool of the tarot, gets devoured by hell, becomes a castrate. So if you're going to read that, I mean, you're more than welcome, but a lot of principles that are very beautiful. We always mention the Psalms in our lectures. Verses 161 to 168 all begun with the letter Shin. Princes have persecuted me without cause, but my heart has feared at your word. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise lying, which in Hebrew is sheker, treason. But I love your law, chastity. I praise you seven times a day because of your righteous judgments. Great peace is to those who love your law, alchemy. And there is no stumbling block to them, which, if you're familiar with the Gospels, relating to Peter, sex is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And as Prince Mishkin betrayed the stone, the sexual force, he became a lunatic. O Yodchava, I have hoped for your salvation and have done your precepts. My soul has kept your testimonies and I love them very much. I have kept your commands and your testimonies for all my ways are before you. Shin is fire. Sexual energy. Transmutation. Shin is the fire and light of our sexual waters, which is where you get words like shamaim. The opening verse of the Bible in Hebrew is Bereshit bara Elohim. In wisdom, Elohim created at Hashamayim, the heavens or fiery waters, and the earth, Haretz, or Veat Haretz. That sexual fire can be polarized in heaven or in hell. We call that energy Fohat in the writings of Samael and Vior. That Fohat is the force of Samael, the angel of strength which could empower spirituality or our diabolic nature. Fire is of a positive force, a positive nature, but when it is misplaced, it becomes dangerous. So fire in the kitchen is good. Fire in the living room is negative. That fire is positive and conscious when it is controlled. But if we feed our lust, empowers the worst nature in the human being. We always talk about a story from the Zohar when relating to the Hebrew letters because each of the Hebrew letters approached Jehovah at the creation of the world in order to initiate the Bible. Of course, the letter is Bet Bereshit that initiates Genesis. But in this allegorical myth, the letter Shin came before him and she said, Master of the worlds, May it please you to create the world by me, for by me you are named Shaddai, 
and it is fitting to greet the world by a holy name. He replied, You are seemly, you are good, and you are true. But since letters of deceit take you as their accomplice, I do not wish to create the world by you. For a lie cannot exist unless kufresh, two negative letters we mentioned earlier, take you. So whoever wants to tell a lie will first lay a foundation of truth and then construct the lie. For shin is a letter of truth, a true letter of the patriarchs who are united in it. Kufresh are letters that appear on the evil side, the left pillar of the tree of life. In order to survive, they entangle the letter shin, forming kasher, conspiracy. Seeing this, she left his presence. So, again, relating to Arkadam 21, spiritual doctrines can be beautiful, yet if they lack the fire of chastity, they have no life. Shin Yod Nun gives us a sum of 360. 360 degrees relates to the Hebrew letter Samek, which is the serpent, the Ouroboros, the dragon swallowing its own tail, a symbol of the eternity of Shekinah, the Kundalini. Nachash ends with Shin, the serpent that tempted Adam and Eve. When that serpent is controlled in the garden of a marriage, in the primordial bliss of a matrimony, that serpent, instead of tempting and leading down to devolution, becomes the bronze serpent that Moses raises about a staff to heal the Israelites. Shin, with its three prongs, refers to the solar astral, mental, and causal bodies. We created initiation. That relates to the chariot of Ezekiel, the Merkabah, the chariot of fire mentioned by William Blake in his poetry. So, we have earth, air, fire, water. Those four elements are synthesized in the Merkabah, which are the solar vehicles, the chariot of God that drives the master. When Shin animates the solar bodies, when we have those bodies created and the fire active in them, yod Jehovah, the four-letter name of God becomes Yeshua. yod shin vav He which is where you get the word Jesus, the Savior. Yod Chava can relate to the four lower bodies on the tree of life that are perfected. Four letters, four bodies. When you incorporate Shin, you involve Malkut, Yesod, Hod, Hod, Netzach, Tiferet. And that becomes Yeshua, the Savior fire. Shin is also the menorah Min or ra. Mina means sex in Hebrew. The menorah relates to the lighting of those inferior bodies with the fire of sex, shin. So that or, the light, shines in that master. Those three prongs refer to the three primary forces as well. Keter, Chokmah, Binah. 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We included the three mother letters of Kabbalah, Aleph, Shin, and Mem, because it relates to the most essential principles of the Hebraic alphabet. Without these three forces, we cannot create. Aleph is the wind, the air in the head. Shin, the fires of the heart, help control the waters of Mem, the sexual glands. So, yod he vav e a o ignis the fire agua the water origo the spirit or shin mem aleph respectively those three forces are synthesized with shin because you find the fire within all the elements there is fire in the air. There is the fire in the waters, the fires in the earth, and the fire within the fire. That fire is most deeply embedded within our sexual matter, which is the oil of the temple of God. You find that the Hebrew word shemen, oil, relates to semen. So when all the scriptures talk about anointing your head with oil, it means that you're conserving that matter, transforming that fire, and being baptized with the creative force internally. That is baptism. That is a work with shin. As the book of Proverbs states, chapter 21, verse 20, there is treasure, atzor, to be desired, and oil, shemen, and the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man, Bala, spendeth it up. So Atsor is Aleph, Vav, Tsari, Resh. You find the, the word Or, light. It's the treasure of God, which you find in Tsari. We explained in Arkadam 18 the meaning of Tsari, which is Ots Hadatobera, the tree of knowledge. Tsari looks like a tree or a cross. So the treasure of God is the light that you find in your tzari, your tree of knowledge, your sexual glands. So oil is in the dwelling of the wise, meaning this seminal energy is always conserved. But a foolish man or woman, bala, bet lamed ayin, a foolish man or woman spendeth it up, meaning expels it, so that there's no light in the temple. It's from Proverbs chapter 21, verse 20. Even the word bala, bet lamed ayin, is how you spell the name of a demon, ba'el, whom we conjure in the conjuration of the seven. In the name of Gabriel, may Adonai command thee and draw thee hence ba'el. So a demon, a ba'alim, is someone who expels the seminal matter. This is well explained in the story of Elijah fighting the Baalim in the book of Kings. 1 Kings, chapter 18, verses 17 to 40. I'll relate to you one quote from the Zohar that talks about some of the principles we see in the very center of this glyph. 
the chariot of God is formed by the three mother letters of Kabbalah. The Zohar refers to those as principles, images, that are synthesized with the work of the creative energy. So the Merkabah is a chariot that drives the initiate, the solar vehicles within the internal planes. All images are comprised in the human face, for it is a large face traced with tracings, engraved with engravings of the explicit name, yod the forces of man and woman united in alchemy in the four directions of the world east, west, north and south <coughs> so the four directions relate to the four bodies symbolically speaking the four elements that we explained in Arcanum 4 Mikael is inscribed in the south relating to the fire all faces gaze at the human face. Face of a lion, face of an ox, face of an eagle. A human is a male and female. A true man or spiritual initiate is made from man and woman, alchemy. And is otherwise not called human. From it are traced figures of the chariots of God, myriads upon myriads. As it is written, the chariots of God, myriads upon myriads, Thousands of Shinan, which is a word for angels. So all those masters in the superior planes, which you can invoke and speak with, all have the solar bodies perfected. So if you invoke in the astral plane using your invocations, you can see those masters with a lot of light coming down to you. Shinan, Shin, Nun, Aleph, Noon, or Final Noon. Totality of all those figures. Shor, ox. Nesher, eagle. Arya, lion. Final noon, the human. So Shinan is an acrostic. It contains the four elements, the four holy creatures of alchemy. Ehe, or as you say, Hayot HaKadosh, cry, speak, roar, bellow. Kadosh, 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 within the invocation of Solomon, the four holy creatures of the perfect matrimony, which are the four bodies of alchemy created in a marriage, but also the three brains and the body that are in balance. So the human, an extension merging as one through the mystery of male and female of the perfect matrimony. All those thousands and myriads emerge from this mystery, Shinan, from these images, each one spreads out fittingly. These are the ones interlaced, interwoven, included in one another. Ox, eagle, lion, human. Conducted by the mystery of four engraved names, ascending to be guided and to gaze. Ox ascends to the human face. So, we find that the four elements relate to the Hebrew letters. The ox relates to the earth, the eagle with the air, the lion with the fire, and the man with the waters of sex. A name ascends, crowned and engraved in the mystery of two colors, El. Then it turns back, is inscribed and engraved on the throne, 
designated to be conducted by the mystery of this name. So what does it mean to create the throne of God? Your spinal medulla is your throne in which God sits. If the conduit is clean, full of purity, circulating the Christic force, then your spirit can manifest in you through intellect, emotions, and sex, and physically. What does it mean to inscribe and engrave on the throne, to embed stones and virtues of the, the being through a marriage? Those are symbols of creating the conscious qualities of the spirit in us. Eagle ascends to the human face to be guided and to gaze. Another name ascends, crowned and engraved in the mystery of two faces, radiant colors, ascending in the ascent of the crown above, gadol, great. Then it turns back, is inscribed and engraved in the throne, designated to be conducted by the mystery of this name. So again, this is talking about the perfect matrimony, the sacred name of God in which we imprint on our stone, the Asad, is Yod Hey Vau Hey, Jehovah. Yod is the man, Hey is the woman. Vav is the phallus, Hey is the uterus. With that principle and working in a marriage, we engrave the virtues of God. We create the throne of God, the Merkabah. Lion ascends to the human face to be guided into gaze. Another name ascends crowned and engraved in the mystery of the two faces, bold colors aligned in power, gibur, mighty, relating to giburah, justice, the left pillar of the tree of life. Then it turns back, is inscribed and engraved in the throne, designated to be conducted by the mystery of this name. Human gazes at them all, because the true human being, the spirit, whom and man, the mind that is in balance, controls all the elements. While all ascend and gaze at him, then they are all traced in their engravings, in this tracing in the mystery of one name called Nora, awesome. So you find Nora is another acrostic. Nora means awesome. You find the letters Nun, Vav, Resh, Aleph, to receive the, or experience the awesomeness or grandiosity of God is to work in alchemy. So it is written of them, the image of their face was a human face. They are all comprised in this image, an image comprising them. Because of this mystery, the Blessed Holy One is called the Great, Mighty, and Awesome God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For these names are engraved above in the mystery of the supernal chariot, comprised of four letters, Yod, He, Vau, He. The name, in comp the name in comp comprising all. This is only possible through working with the vital force. And the Zohar makes an explicit reference to how the chariot of God is formed through working with the tree of knowledge, working with the seed. Lastly, we'll conclude with that verse. So, once the energy of God descends, these four images emerge, tracing their tracings, engraved, radiant, sparkling, flashing, 
scattering seed upon the world like a tree of life. Meaning when a master is perfected with the seed of sex, they become like an oak tree, a tree of knowledge that can disseminate the teachings of transformation. The human image, image emerges embracing all images. Then this verse applies, fruit trees of every kind, bearing fruit with the seed in it upon the earth, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. It emits seed only purposefully upon earth, with the seed in it, precisely. From here, we learn that one is not permitted to emit seed in vain. Of course, many rabbis traditionally interpret this to mean that not to reach the orgasm in vain through either masturbation or just to procreate children. But in alchemy, this is different. One does not emit the seed at all. It is vanity to reach orgasm. Vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says Solomon in Ecclesiastes, I believe. So in order to work with these principles, we practice the runes. We won't explain all these steps at the end of this lecture, but we'll practice this together. So we include this PDF or slide for those who want to learn how to perform the runolene. So Salm Island VR gave this rune at the end of the chapter on transmutation, this arcanum specifically. The runolene helps us to transmute the fire of our sexual glands so that we can redirect it through yogic posture, like the runes fa or olin. Olin relates to othila, telema, willpower. So when you work with that fire, you develop your spiritual will to work for the benefit of humanity and our own path. The rune Olin relates to the rune Fa. The rune Fa, the rune of the Father, has the hands facing upward towards the east, in which we receive the solar energies through our chakras of the palms into our body. Then we perform or pronounce sacred mantras. The rune Olin is opposite it looks like the rune Dorn, which is a rune or posture we perform for accumulating solar force, Christ's will. And then you breathe, transmuting those forces, directing them with movement into your heart. So we'll perform the rune Olin together, but we include this slide for those who are interested in following step by step with this practice. So we'll conclude and open the floor to questions. Yes. You mentioned at one point that you know initiation is having a drop, job that we hate, and you know learning to overcome that. Well, what if we love our job? It means that our karma is less severe. But uh, regardless of any type of position, any type of occupation we have in life, there's always going to be hardships. So for some people, it might be at their job. For some, it might be their marriage. Others, it could be family life. Or for some people, it could be all, all that. It depends. Each person's karma is different. Some people have very easy circumstances, but have hardships in other areas. 
We all are struck in the area where we're weakest so that we can change that, overcome that. You know, so, many, so many people leave this world ahead of time. I mean, even on TV, you know, they want donations to the, you know, the children's hospital and kids are dying of cancer. They're not out of church. It's really a chance. All the millions of soldiers who died from the wars because of political leaders. These, these poor kids were 18, and, you know, 20, 23, 20, maybe the millions. These terrible battles that have occurred. They never had much of a chance to. It's intense. And if those people are serious about changing their situation, we have to learn how to bear that hardship with gratitude. Very difficult to do. But one shouldn't protest against God. You know, we receive what we've earned. But at the same time, while people have faced those situations, terrible circumstances, if they're serious about investigating their own psyche, they'll be reborn in circumstances and can earn that right to receive the doctrine. Now, it's interesting that in these times, the knowledge is open for everybody. But you can see how many people really want it or really want to practice it. So regardless of what people want, if they really want it, they'll find it. If they really want to continue with it, they will. But out of a thousand who seek me, one finds me. Out of a thousand who finds me, one follows me. Out of a thousand who follow me, one is mine, said Krishna, or the Hindu Christ. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads into life, but few there be that find it. While broad is the way and vast is the path that leads to destruction, and many go in they're at. It's easy for the seed from a tree to die. You see, you go in the forest preserves. You see pine trees where thousands of seeds are given to the earth. And yet how many of them actually germinate to another plant, another tree? It's a terrible reality, but a true allegory. Those who want to really change will. And if we obey the commands of our inner being, we won't end up like the fool being left at the wayside like seed scattered to the winds. Yes? Um, I have a question about when you, when you get to that stage of you know, you're you've seen the light, so to speak, and you, you're about to make that, you, you're at that point where you can go up or down. Are you talking about, or is there even a difference between you have the knowledge and you know this experience, but you choose to use it in malicious ways, or, or, and or, is it that you fall because of the ego unwillingly? So, it's a good question. When I'm talking about the fool of the tarot, especially, I'm talking about people who were resurrected. So, those individuals are very different. They had knowledge. They were self-realized. They had an immortal body. And so, with knowledge of God comes responsibility. So, they knew at that level that they were forbidden to be married again because they, having conquered sex through alchemy, 
they had to renounce it. But some of them make the mistake, they, you know, being still human at that level, they fall in love, like Zanoni. Zanoni fell in love in France. He was a resurrected master, he had an immortal body. He fell in love with an actress from Naples, and he made the mistake of forgetting his divine mother, consulting her. He just went on his own whim. Hey, he was with this, this woman, and then he couldn't control her sexually, and he fell. So he had more knowledge, which means that the consequences for him were very severe, which ended up in him being killed in the French Revolution. They took his body. But for people like us who are just perhaps starting for the first time, for most people, you know, people have accidents. We have accidents, of course. When you're trying to work, you may, you know, face certain ordeals or temptations if you're married or have a spouse where it's difficult to control the energy and the one has an accident. That's one thing. But intentionally, either intentionally falling or, you know, being at the level of a master at that height and choosing to enter into a relationship when it was forbidden, that's totally different. You know, the more light you have, the more responsibility you have. And for, to make a mistake at that level of that type is very severe. It ends with a great tragedy, which is the purpose of the fool of the tarot. But when you're falling into the mud already, like every one of us, and not up there, you know, we're still try, striving to get on our feet, so to speak. So what about the fool that's, you know, usually many decks put the fool at the beginning before even the magician? Would that be the case, like what's, what's being described here, where we finally have that chance to enter into the one, the magician, the initiation? But then, you know, whether by, by our will or not by our will, we, we fall out of that. Is that the fool that is before the magician? It could be. I mean, there's a lot of decks. There's a lot. As uh, Hamlet would say in the play of his name, there is more to heaven and earth than is dreamt of in our philosophy, Horatio. So I'd have to look into those other decks to really comment. I mean, I'm familiar with a lot, but the one system that's really helped me internally has been this deck. But yeah, possibly because the, they put the fool at the beginning, there could be a number of explanations for it. One, those decks were compromised because we explained on our website that the tarot that was given to the public was done so without permission from the White Lodge. And so people would take certain aspects of that tradition, put it together, became adulterated. Yeah, but I think some of those people who were initiates to this were using that type of deck. And some people were, could have given a little bit of the knowledge, but not all of it. And so what people have today is, is a is borrowed, you know, wasn't given explicitly or openly until as recently as the 1950s. Now, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, in our level, we are fools who have not reached resurrection, but to really be a, a resurrected master and to fall is the greatest stupidity. Even, but it happens to many people because even Samal and Vior, who was... He was resurrected at one point. He fell, but at this lifetime, he, he rised again. So basically, the lesson is that at any stage of this path, you have to remain vigilant. Yes, and work with the fire, the sexual energy, because that's what's going to determine everything. Even to enter the path, you have to work with Shin, 
work with the olive tree like in the image of um, the eternal antechamber or antitheater of cosmic science, Heinrich Kuhnrath. But when you're on the path, work with Shin. The fire is how we enter Eden. The fire is how we leave. But, you know, as Samal Enver was mentioning, if you want to go to the very heights, you have to be very defined. You have to really know what you want, which is why he said, curious people should leave. Don't even enter because if you, reach those, if you try to reach those heights and, you know, are not rededicated, if one falls, it's very severe, very painful. Which is why the Quran says, you know, this path is for those who believe, who know how to be through love, who are alchemists, whereas the disbelievers are the fornicators. And they all circulate, they study Tarot, and they go in a circle and have these discussions that are very intellectual. And, you know, you can learn a lot of things. But who is actually working with the light of Shin is another thing. Because you can't have that experience if we don't work in that force. It's just the, the reality. And of course, uh, nobody likes to admit that they are the fool of the tarot. And if we're giving these lectures, it's not because we know better than anybody else. We're doing our best. You know, we don't claim to be better than anybody, but we have to speak the facts. You know, personally, I am a big fool. Big fool of the tarot. But I am working with Shin in order to go up. And so far, internally, that's what they've been showing me, is that you're going up. So, sexual fire is the spiritual fire. But also, you find that shin emerges from sex, the mind, and to the heart. But also, you receive fire through prana, the crystal breath, the air, which enters your nostrils through pranayama. You're working with the breath to circulate the fires of sex, and pretty much everything you eat, think, feel, do and breathe has to do with the quality of your sexual energy. So I know we've spoken many times that if you want your seminal energy to be strong, eat well, sleep well, exercise, transform impressions especially. And that way your, the quality of your energy is going to be more profound. And that way you feed your spirituality. Is that through pranayama? Yes. So either with pranayama, we work with the sexual energy, or if you're married, even better. Yeah, so when you're eating food, break it down mentally, consciously by doing the mantra cream, which was pronounced as cream. When you pronounce the mantras when you eat and you eat in a prayerful attitude, you're digesting those forces and assimilating them with greater concentration. Yeah, you pronounce them mentally. You, obviously, when you're eating, you, your mouth is full, you're at a restaurant, you know, you're eating. Yeah, people are going to think it's pretty funny, but yeah, it's mental. Any final questions?
and there's a lot more to go. Thus have I heard. To learn more about the knowledge covered in this lecture, we invite you to study the books available through Glorian Publishing or GnosticTeachings.org. You can also view free online courses, lectures, transcriptions, and articles available at ChicagoGnosis.org. All of this is made possible by the support of listeners like you. Have you benefited from this knowledge? Help others by making a tax-deductible donation at chicagognosis.org. We thank you for listening. We hope that these lectures aid you in developing your complete and divine potential. May all beings be happy. May all beings be joyful. May all beings be in peace.